Hello everyone, I'm Samantha Jane Smith. And I'm Jacob Keynes, and you are listening to the Classical Queer Podcast. Welcome back to the Classical Queer Podcast. We are so thrilled this month to be joined by Jordan Clark, um, composer, performer, uh, many other things, as we'll, as we'll hear. Uh, Jordan's based in London and uh, is kind of our first music theater, I suppose, like pure like music theater person uh, in the sense that we tend to kind of sit on uh, opera, classical music, some like maybe art song kind of world. But um, although you have certainly enough of a background in classical music, I'm sure, but uh, in the, at the moment, you're kind of sitting in the, the music theater world. Um, and so welcome. Thank Welcome you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to to be here and chat to you both. And yeah, you're quite right. The the mild imposter syndrome is real. <laughs> I was very very conscious of like, oh, I, you know, the last time I listened to a piece of classical music was was you know definitely not as recently as I've listened to a musical theatre album. Um, but you know, it's all it's all the same circles and the same worlds. And and I definitely have been in the classical world for most of my life. So. And as I tell my students all the time, uh, regardless of the genre we're talking about, at least if we're talking about Western tonal music, there's still five lines and there's still little dots on those five lines. It's all still the same material. So even yeah. though it's, uh, you know, music theater, it's it's all still music. It's all still... Uh, definitely. Uh, I feel like I've spent most of my career and most of the time I was studying music fighting for the fact that musical theater is like as legitimate a world to compose in and create music in anyway. Like my time studying my music degree you know, it was very much like me trying to bang down doors and be like, come on, why can't we study London Road as, as importantly as we can study Shostakovich 5? Like, come on, mm -hmm. these are important things, guys. And you so, tell yeah. me that Sondheim isn't as uh, wonderful and, and complex as a composer as anybody else. Or, I mean, name another 38 composers that do uh, Broadway music theater, but absolutely, yeah. this, is, this is a valid yeah. uh, conversation to have. But maybe let's, uh, let's start with... Uh, Tell everybody your your uh, life background. Yes, how my life story. You have. Sure, yeah. sure. Um, yeah, so I've always always composed. Um, pretty much since I, I started learning music, I was a story writer as a kid. All I ever wanted to do was write stories, and I used to write short stories all the time. And I thought that was what I would do. But when I was nine years old, I started recorder lessons at school and that led into some piano lessons when my dad pulled like a one octave keyboard down from the attic and I started bashing out all the Disney melodies I'd learned on the recorder um and yeah like immediately literally immediately I was like okay well if all these short stories were films what would the music sound like for these films and I just sort of would sit at the piano and and just improvise and 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 play melodies and and really try and like I was a nine-year-old imagining I was John Williams straight away um that was that was how I got into writing music um but at the same time I was falling in love with musicals like deeply deeply in love with them my parents took me to see Mary Poppins on stage and I was obsessed with movies like Mary Poppins other Disney movies other movie musicals singing in the rain all that sort of world of musical theater film was just oh it made me so happy and so all I wanted to do was write that so by the time I was 12 I'd written my first musical 
um <laughs> like i was just writing songs and chatting with my friends and i was really lucky i had this very creative group of friends as a kid and as a teenager so we used to make up stories and make up characters all the time and i would just write songs for those characters and so you know yeah. musical theater was the thing that got me got me writing so i've spent the last 10 years writing musicals that's been my world really yeah yeah i think it's amazing you've got a, had a bunch of friends who actually would sit there and listen to you doing this kind of thing i think if i'd have said it to my friends at 12 they'd have probably punched me and then told me to get a light it's oh kind of, wow yeah it's kind, of, it's kind of great you had a bunch of friends that actually would 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 get in that world with you i think oh it was amazing i i my mum always used to say it was glee it was literally glee but for real it was like the most british version of glee you could possibly imagine <laughs> So it was it was a lot more polite and a little bit less like, let's go for it after school. But yeah, we used to all just stay in the music department after school and we would just sing and sing. And often it would be the musicals that we would check out. And uh, I'll never forget entering the local music festival. Um, we must have all been about 14, me and this group of sort of six or seven friends. And everyone was playing their grade six pieces and singing with their local choir and we entered with the opening number to the adams family musical um, <laughs> and we all had our own parts and i would play the piano for it and you know that was very much we just loved it we, we bonded over it we all enjoyed the musicals you know and we were all a bit nerdy about it as well i remember when matilda the musical first happened like first came out we had already started talking about writing our own, our own Matilda musical. And then it came to light that Tim Minchin was writing one. Um, so, yeah, we just all listened to that album after school, you know, through our GCSEs and stuff. Um, yeah, I was very lucky with that friendship group and I'm still friends with them all now. Um, yeah, we would just sing and sing. It, it is quite interesting because when you talk about musical theatre or, or the, the great days of the, the musical, you know, people tend to go, oh, yeah, there's this. it's sort of like a, a little cult of people who like that kind of thing. But but I remember years ago, I've always loved the 1950s musicals. I've always kind of liked that and earlier sort of, you know, the singing in the rain and all those Gene Kelly and add a, bit of dancing, add a bit of dancing and I'm fine. And and um, and. And, and I was one day listening to this on a Saturday morning and it was like they used to have these the movies on the BBC. And I was listening Saturday morning in, in the student house. And before I knew it, there were like 20 other people sitting there around the sofa watching, you know, Gene Kelly or something like he's singing in there. And everyone's like, you know, oh, yeah, I remember. And it's it's kind of fascinating. It's like a, I think it actually is sort of in people's psyche or something to love the kind of musical, I think. I think so too. Like it's in our DNA, you know, the, I feel like every generation above us was raised on the musical theatre of their time because up until maybe the seventies, like pop music and musical theatre was so connected. You know, I think it was Sondheim who used to say, uh, people didn't walk out of the theatre humming the tunes. They walked into the theatre humming the tunes because everyone mm. knew the scores already. You know, my mum used to always tell me how she had had My Fair Lady as a record when she was a kid. And, you know, before that, everyone knew Singing in the Rain or, you know, everyone knew White Christmas as like one of the big movies to watch. Or I do feel like in the past, people have just kind of loved musical theatre music you know, whether in context of the musical or out of context of the musical. 
so there is this like huge nostalgia value attached to these musical theater things you know yeah and and i think for the you know like I, when i used to look at my parents that was of course what they did they went you know they didn't watch it on film they actually went to musical theater and saw the things live imagine this kind of uh, yeah exactly and, and you kind of can't see that these days i mean i know it happens yeah. but it, it's kind of like you know every little place had its own little musical theater on the corner you know you're going to hear somebody sing and do some theater and this kind of thing and, and that's kind of all got swept away by film i guess so. it's definitely changed like you know even in my lifetime that's definitely changed i feel like that's such a wider conversation isn't it with with music in general like that's such part that's that's part of the conversation of like how on earth do we get people back into those rooms to hear live music musical theater is definitely having the same conversation you know how do we get audiences back into theaters to watch these musicals i feel like musical theater is possibly having an easier time than concert music mm. and classical music and orchestral concerts you know those live events i feel like are uh, it's just harder to touch base with those TikTok audiences and those younger audiences that are obsessed with the musicals like Six and Hamilton. You know, there is a world of musical theatre out there that is not having a hard time getting audiences in. But that's the incredibly popular side of it. There is still this huge underground movement of musicals that are trying new things out, that are trying to be brave artistically and are built on the backs of chamber music and contemporary composers and their work that just are struggling to find audiences because well, a million reasons you know and yeah <laughs> film being you know so convenient nowadays yeah. is definitely one of them um, but, but i mean in a way musical i see i'm, I'm rabbiting already but musical theater is is kind of in a way easily accessible in a way which maybe, you know, we've talked about this before, haven't we, Jacob, about how mm. some classical music is seen as so pompous and so isolated from everyday life that, that the TikTok generation, if you like, can't get access to it. Yeah, a bit of musical theatre, some singing, and, and kind of makes it easier. And, and maybe that's, in fact, the bridge they need. Yeah, I feel like that's connected to the, the pop thing again, like when musicals are using a pop vocabulary to to express their stories then younger people you know just gravitate towards that whereas if musicals all sounded like contemporary uh chamber music right now uh that the audience is just i don't know they don't put two and two together in the same way um yeah it's a hard one where i think musicals seem to be going deeper and deeper into a pop vocabulary like all the time and that's certainly not my vocabulary which scares me a bit <laughs> you know I, I i'm often thinking like at the minute i would love to write more musicals that sound a little bit like a britain chamber opera or or that sound a little bit uh just instrumental rather than electronic even um mm. but musicals are so uh popular when they do sound super modern and when they do reflect you know the pop stars of our generation um yeah yeah it's a tricky I tricky one something to be said for for like a strong melody regardless of like how it's presented and it's it's funny i mean i live in new music world so much and even i go to concerts of like a repertoire that i should love uh the repertoire that i play with friends of mine who are playing it and I sit there and it's awful. It's like inaccessible to me. And if it's inaccessible to me, how is it remotely going to be accessible to anybody else? And so you're right. Like, I think I, although the, the 
kind of dive towards like pop, 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 electronic, uh, you know, music theater is, you know, it's not my vibe either. And I, I love like a, a good orchestral music theater score, oh, but, but it's a good too. melody. Like it's still good writing and it's, you know, uh, the, the notes on the page don't actually go anywhere. Like it's, uh, that's the accessibility part. And I think we can write things still. And I think you are writing things that are just good music and it doesn't matter. Uh, because, and I, so where, where I'm going with this is there are really good scores that regardless of how they've been adapted, whether they've been uh, like the fully realized, you know, uh, at the proms, like orchestral version where someone comes out and like sings whatever, or the like, uh, chamber pit orchestra version where there's like four people playing and there's three of them are keyboards and one, one drummer there's still good scores like it's still a good show because the writing is good but i mean you're the one who writes the one <laughs> maybe you have thoughts on that oh i agree oh my goodness i agree i've always considered myself a melodist like to me i i want a, the the melody to be the core of what i'm making like I'm a big sucker for interesting harmony and gorgeous detailed orchestration as well, um, or arrangement or, you know, whether it's instrumental or electronic or whatever, I love that. But if there isn't some melody there that feels really human and really like it can like find its way into your brain <laughs> with ease, then that's when I find things to become a bit inaccessible. Um, yeah, like everything I've just said about the whole pop and uh, the whole connection between pop and musical theatre and pop and finding your audience. Like, I love those pop musicals. I do love them. And I think the best ones do handle melody so brilliantly. Like, they are big tunes still. It's just the difference, like you say, whether they sound like Moana with big tunes or whether mm. they sound like six you know like if they're living in the mm. world of beyonce and lady gaga and charlie xcx with big melodies um but yeah i couldn't agree more like it's still about music being good like there are definitely musicals right now being made that don't sound like pop or don't sound mm -hmm. produced you know they don't sound electronic or like they've been made in a studio they're out there i think it's probably just like musicals are such big beasts they're such big production beasts, you know, they're huge, they're expensive, they're difficult to make. So the people taking the risks to put them on, uh, you know, it's just a little bit easier to put them on now if they know they can put it on with a pop band or less than that, rather than a chamber orchestra. You know, that's <laughs> definitely happening. That's definitely happening a little bit at the minute. Um because it's all about the money, isn't it? It's all about just making sure they can put these things on. And it's, it's harder if you've got a piece that's orchestrated beautifully for 14 musicians. You know, I think that's why there's a bit of a move away from it. Um, yeah. Sorry, I went slightly away from your point about melodies and, and you know, it being good music. But I feel like they're connected. I feel like they're, they're, people are writing great music. Um, it, yeah, it's it's just that thing of like whether they're writing it for big forces or not that, that makes the difference i think yeah I, I think one of the things though that i i kind of maybe want to pick up on here is that you know when i hear some of the very big productions and you know you go and see big musical theater i find them less exciting than if i go and see something that's small 
and and as kind of a bit less production value. I don't know quite what I mean by that, but it's it's kind of like, you know, the 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 little the, the little theatre around the corner where you're more intimate and and more, you know. Oh, I agree. Closer, I think makes so much difference. And do you remember Jacob? We had a we had a uh, those those Spanish uh, Swedish singers on who went. Through, do you remember that they we, we had interviewed them about a year ago, who yeah. produced like little operas. Um, addressing all kinds of subjects that were really sort of musical come sort of like, you know, things are actually, and I kind of feel that that kind of closeness, which, which I get from your music is kind of, kind of a key, you know, it's kind of, it's a bit more intimate. It's a bit more like, Hey, we can, we can be touchy feely with these people. Does that make mm, sense? I love I'm stuff sure. like that. Yeah. I, I mean, to me, that's, that's one of the most important things about, musicals i i love musicals unashamedly because of the, how vulnerable they are like they're so mm. earnest i think it's how it, anyone out there who's like i don't like musicals musicals aren't my thing you know which i'm sure we've all met those people especially in the worlds of classical music potentially you know those people who just they've heard four musicals they're all really cheesy and emotional they won't listen to anything else to me like that's why i love musicals so much because whether you're <laughs> watching you know, one of the big epic musicals like Miss Saigon or something, or you're watching like a small chamber production of, of I don't know, a two-hander like last five years, or even like a, mm. a small production of Into the Woods or something. Emo emotional vulnerability is what musicals do so well. All the characters speak like and sing from this place of honesty. And if you're seeing that in a small venue, if you're seeing that in a fringy place where they're right there, ah, like that's, I love that. I live for that so much, you know, I think uh, there, there's this sort of, uh, there's this thing of like musicals being so expensive and having to bring in big audiences. So they've just blown up and blown up and blown up. You know, we all know the big mega musicals from the eighties and there are these huge productions out there now. Often those huge productions have also been on for like year after year after year, and they don't feel as real or present anymore. I would love nothing more than to watch like a new musical with two people in it above a pub. Like that's mm. my favorite thing. <laughs> I love that. I love that intimacy and that, like I say, if you've got a big, big musical uh, or rather a small musical there, because it's a musical, it's going to have a big heart. It's going to be very emotional and expressive. So having that right in front of you is just like a special experience, isn't it? Yeah. I think that's entirely true. I mean, in my, my tiny experience in, sitting in music theater world, I mean, I've done pit direction for a number of shows and I, the last one I did just pre COVID was we did a, a tour across Canada of Hedwig and the Angry Inch and oh my it gosh. existed wow. only in gay bars because it's Hedwig and it's about uh, uh, Hedwig from East communist East Berlin finding, yeah. finding their, their new life in, in whatever. But we uh, exclusively toured it in, the seediest, smallest, grossest, hottest, most disgusting gay bars Excellent. that we could possibly find. And it was the best experience because not only was the, um, the content really like, uh, present, but like you were also four feet from the audience yes. and you were watching them like cry as they were like experiencing this show. Or because it was like, you know, 48 degrees Celsius in, mm. in the hall, one of the two. But like, they were very present and immediate. And it was one of the best conducting experiences of my life because I it bet. was that music theater experience. 
I mean, talk, about, like, talk about a show with big, great melodies and big heart. Like, every song yeah. in that show is so earnest and so truthful. That's why mm-hmm. it hurts so much, right? That's why it's such a yeah. like roller coaster of a show emotionally. Um, and a big score, right? You're not talking about a, a classical chamber thing there. You're talking about a rock score, mm-hmm. like a rock pop score. Mm-hmm. Like that in an intimate space must just like hurt, <laughs> you know? It must hit yeah. you. That must have been an amazing experience. Oh, it was great. And we, uh, we toured it for months off and on and so we would kind of like do 10 shows and then go to a different city and then take you know a month off and then go to a different city but the thing that means so much to my like understanding of that show is how invested people are in it like both in their like nostalgia brain of like having grown up with the show or having like uh found a, a queerness through that production but also it's so relevant at any given time. Like pick a, pick a time period and Hedvig is like a super relevant show to do. Um, Mm. But like you say, just good melodies, two people on stage minus the band, but like two people like doing this show, um, the immediacy and the rawness and the like presentness of doing that. But you're right. I mean, uh, next five years, next to normal, like these are all like great, tiny shows to do in the sense that they aren't these big cats productions. They're not Miss Saigon. They're not um, these huge shows, uh, but they can speak so immediately to an audience. They can really be very connected. Yeah. Yeah. And and just before we go on, for 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 those people listening, Jacob will provide a list of CD bars across Canada that he has (laughs) frequented on this tour. (laughs) <laughs> just, <laughs> just happily my favorite i always say i don't know if it still exists because i think they were they were on death's door before going but there's a place oh. in winnipeg mm-hmm. if you're in uh in winnipeg ever called whiskey dicks and it's a gay bar in in uh, winnipeg manitoba in the prairies whiskey dicks oh, we're, we're going we're going that's the I'm next booking my flights right now yeah let's go yeah <laughs> do you think we need to listen to some music jacob and, yes. and jordan yeah, yeah well, what are we going to listen to first do you think let's maybe listen to uh really good stuff and so maybe mm-hmm. maybe you want to tell us about some uh public domain i'd love to yeah i'd love to um ironically after everything we've just said public domain is a musical i wrote where i was really trying to live in a pop landscape <laughs> um public domain came out of uh originally an event called Newsfeed, which happened at the Southwark Playhouse, a, a little uh, sort of art house venue in South London, where the director, Adam Lenson, had set up this night where he wanted writers to create musical theatre that was inspired by news from that week. So whatever's going on in the news that week, write a song about it, dramatise it, turn it into musical theatre. So me and my co-writer, Francesca Forrestal, who I write with all the time, most amazing writer, they're incredible, um, took a video of Mark Zuckerberg being grilled in Congress, like absolutely ripped to shreds, which was entertaining in the first place, but also like deeply compelling. Uh, Just watching him sort of fight for his 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 life really uh where this this amazing congresswoman katie porter was really really just criticizing him for all of the lack of integrity that facebook had at that time and so we musicalized that a little bit like a hamilton cabinet rap battle 
we took that and just musicalized it word for word verbatim um which was so fun and like went down really well the audience loved it we had the best time performing it um and then out of that grew a full musical a full show uh, that was partly still about mark zuckerberg uh the show ended up following mark zuckerberg and his wife priscilla chan and also followed two young influencers a millennial influencer called millie and a gen z influencer called z uh who relied on these platforms for their careers their friendships their relationships so the show followed these two people at the top of the social media food chain and these two people at the bottom of the social media food chain um, and the show is about our identities online our relationship with honesty online our dependency on our online worlds uh and we had started writing it before uh march 2020 we did start writing it before all of that happened but obviously as we were writing it and we started to live in a world that was completely dependent on our internet and our connections online the show just like got deeper and deeper and deeper um the show is built from different different scenes and different duets and things between multiple characters and this one really good stuff is uh you're gonna hear two facebook content monitors who are employed totally uh, freelance uh they're, they're not employed by facebook they're employed by a different company but they're sort of told they're going to work for facebook and uh this song is uh their journey through working for that company let's take a listen then some really good stuff I thought this is Facebook This is Facebook I'm gonna be doing some really good stuff I was actually like really excited for that Because uh, in college All my professors were like You know, you wanna get that good $30,000 starting entry level job They told me that I I would be going on to like high profile social media accounts such as like a, a Disney World or like Animal Orlando and I'd be doing kind of like some data searching posts most people react to and comment to and like I their business on facebook so i was gonna read everybody's stuff and then be able to you know decide if it has to stay up or come down <laughs> so i thought it would be a fun nonchalant about the problems that are there, such as workers having sex in the building. People drinking alcohol, smoking weed in the parking lot. Then there was the problems of the bathrooms. The problem of the bathrooms. Some employees thought it was funny to smoke. 
smear feces all over the stalls. And urinate on the floor. Oh, one bathroom. One. They had one bathroom in the entire building. Absolutely disgusting. Yeah. Absolutely disgusting. Yeah. Absolutely disgusting. Yeah. Absolutely disgusting. Yeah. The desks were disgusting. Disgusting. Pubic hairs on the desks. Boogers on the desk. Boogers on the desk. I was gonna climb the corporate ladder. This is Facebook. I'm gonna be doing some really good stuff. And there were going to be people and animals that you could help bring justice to. Basically, we had an outline of what we were doing, and none of it was business. It was uh, graphic violence, hate speech, sexual solicitation, sexual exploitation, that kind of stuff. Uh, where do I start? Um, animals. Animals. Mostly animals. Mostly animals. The abuse of animals. Abuse of animals. I've, I've seen, seen them. them. I've seen a pit of pigs, and they threw fire, and you can hear the pigs screaming. Oh, I'm sorry. I just don't want to get emotional about the animals. <laughs> sorry. Um, I, I just think about the animals all the time. One of the kids grabbed the iguana by the tail, and they started to smash the iguana onto the ground. You could just hear the iguana screaming. And they just they just kept slamming the iguana onto the ground. And then the iguana just kept screaming and screaming. And then the screaming stopped. And that's what I'm still thinking about. Even though I left. I ate. But when you look at bad stuff all day, sometimes you just want to eat something to make you feel better. They say all the time, okay, we have these counselors here to help you. We've got nine minutes of wellness time per day. There I was this one where there was a baby from Turkey, like Saudi Arabia, and, and the mother was dropping the baby on the ground. And it's just, it's just there. It's always there. And you have to always look at it. I've seen it over and over and over again. I've seen it over and over and over again. You can hear the baby gurgling and trying to breathe. There were going to be people and animals that you could help bring justice to. But you're not doing that at all. All you're doing is covering up Facebook's mistakes. what I'm still thinking about even though I left and that's what I'm still thinking about even though I left and that's what I'm still thinking about and that's what I'm still thinking about even though I left and that's what I'm still thinking about
that was uh, really good stuff from your musical Public Domain. I must admit, when I listened to this the first time, I kind of, I kind of, I must admit, missed the words because I, I, I loved the music in it. And I was kind of humming away to the music and then sort of had to re backtrack and think, oh, there's some words here which are important. So, so I mean, I think you caught, you certainly caught me with the musical hooks in that. I, I really kind of liked that musical sort of feel to it. It was almost like I wrote down, reminds me of something Doris Day would be in the 1950s. <laughs> oh, biggest compliment I could ever have. That's superb. I know. I, know. Wow. I mean, it was kind of like that. It kind of shocked yeah, me. It's yeah. like, hey, it's a modern, it's modern version, but it kind of liked that, that kind of thing. So, so it really caught me. And, and I had to go back a second time and actually listen to the words to actually they get the understanding because I thought that the, the tune carried me along, which is what we're saying about good musical, you know, you're know, having the tune that, yeah. and then you're telling the story. So that was really good for me. Well, also in that song, like there's so much going on there. <laughs> like it, it's incredibly crazy what those people had to deal with. And what I loved about dramatizing their journey was that they do start off as these very optimistic earnest people who have a lot of hope and that's where the doris day vibe comes in you know that whole yeah, theme exactly. that slightly that americana optimism is is totally inspired by that world of musical theater it's calamity jane all over yeah, um, yeah, exactly. but yeah calamity jane i was thinking of exactly that when that first you came in i was thinking this is i could see doris day and calamity jane there because it has yeah. that western feel at the beginning to it, it was yeah kind of nice. it, it's meant to be a little nod to musical theater in the american dream really is what that that vibe is like you know and that that first bit of music and then you know three minutes in they're talking about animal abuse and all of the things that they have to they're forced to confront in this job without any support or any awareness of the emotional cost of that and still you've got this american dream calamity jane vibe underneath so you know it's it's lovely to hear that you went back to listen again because really the hope with that song is that it sort of catches you off guard with whether you're supposed to feel like you can celebrate what's happening for them or whether you can't, you know? Um, yeah. There's lots of layering in it. So, yeah. And, and I think that was why it was kind of interesting to me, because as I said, it was this very positive feel, you know, I was taken along with it and it's great in that. And if you don't, if you just heard the music and don't listen to the words, you get that feeling a lot of the way through. And it's like, then you catch these old words. You think, now, hold on a minute. Where are we now? And exactly as you said, you then have to go back and actually go, okay, what are we really talking about here? And and it's like, this doesn't match the music almost. There's this strong mm. juxtaposition of the two, which is sort of suddenly starts to jar when you listen to it more. Yeah. Well, the other thing that they do as characters, which you can literally see in the original interview with them, uh, is they do that thing that I think we all know very well, where a situation is not quite what we thought it would be or what we want it to be, but we hold on to our optimism and we go no no we're sticking this out all right a couple things aren't quite what we hoped for but it's going to be all right isn't it you know so there's that in it as well that that sense of hope really that they just don't let go of they just don't let go of until maybe right near the very end where it turns from like desperate hope to just like <laughs> betrayal <laughs> And, and, and it was interesting because you said you took a, a lot of this from from zuckerberg and and that kind of thing but it had a very, and I don't mean to say it's in a horrible way, a very British feel to it. Yeah, <laughs> it had that doesn't a, surprise me at all. 
Yeah, there's, there's this kind of British thing, you know, we'll have the hope until the last possible moment when it will be dashed against the wall, you know, but we're still there with our British. And it kind of had a bit of a feel of that. And it was kind of almost like a bit of like, you know, pomp and circumstance and a bit of that in it as well. Yeah. Which, which, you know, gave me this very British, it's American, but it's got a British vibe in this sense of hopelessness, which which they don't realise until right at the end. It's like, realise you're in the bad place early. It's kind of kind of fascinating. As a British person, I find that really fascinating. Yeah, yeah, no, I get that. Obviously, we did it to British audiences here in London. You know, we did it, we were really lucky we got to do the show on the West End, uh, just when the theatre started to reopen after the pandemic. And British audiences really clung on to the irony, you know, those <laughs> moments. That's probably where that British sensibility comes from. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. But yeah, thanks for playing when it, writing, Alma. When you're when you're writing, when how often are you thinking about what the the audience perception is going to be? In the sense of, you know, you're you're writing something for yourself uh, that you find interesting or funny, or um, that pairs well with your story, but are you thinking about what the the perception is as you're writing it? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I am a lot for me. I, I don't know whether it's because of who I am or because of the models of, you know, musical theatre producing that I'm aware of. But to me, any live event, whether musical theatre, musical theatre, opera, concerts, anything, it's a relationship. It's a collaboration between the, the artists sharing the story or sharing their emotions or the work and the audience who have come. You're going to have a different show every time, depending on who that audience is, who's there, how they're feeling. So I'm, I'm always thinking about it. I'm always thinking about making sure things are clear for the audience. Like if you've got a point you want to make, you know, make it clear so the audience, whoever they are, have a way in. I've, I really believe in that. Um, but I don't believe in doing it just for the audience. You know, I don't believe in making work so that a random audience have a great time. Uh, yeah. I think it's about that sweet spot between making something that compels you and moves you or feels, feels important to you or truthful to you and also feels shareable. You know, uh, it's got to feel like it's, it's going to land when you put it in a room with people <laughs> and they're going to listen to it and be there. You know, I feel like it's, trying to find that sweet spot um i think that's that's about as far as i go in terms of like thinking about the audience um but yeah i'd say i think it's quite important i think about it a lot um which is a good thing and a bad thing <laughs> sometimes yeah. oh my goodness sometimes i think about it so much i get w way too scared and i definitely censor myself sometimes when i'm trying to make something and yeah i'll get too worried that the audience won't won't want it or won't be interested so i'll put it in a drawer and leave it for another day you know that definitely happens sometimes um but then i then i just have to watch out for that you know um yeah what what about you guys um, and audiences like do you do, do you find yourself thinking about audiences when it comes to anything you're making or rehearsing or putting together it's funny i it really depends on the context and it depends on who the audience is going to be if i am uh rehearsing a show or like uh, curating a, a set of repertoire for something and I don't um, care I guess, what, what the audience reaction is as in the the production is uh, a self-standing set of pieces for kind of another reason other than an audience and the audience is uh, invited in to witness it 
happen however it happens? Uh, no, but what I've always found is that when uh, I do those type of productions, uh, I'm a lot freer in what I choose. And it, I think more and more, it's less that I don't care about the audience. It's that I trust that the audience is going to, I know the audience well enough that they're going to come along with me in my not caring about what they're listening to. And it often um, allows me to pick the weirder stuff, the stranger stuff, the more reverent stuff, the more uh, complex stuff. As soon as I start thinking, oh, they're not going to get this, or oh, it's too off the wall, or they're not going to understand what's happening with this, I, I default to the most mundane, boring, uh, ho-hum stuff. And so... Uh, I try not to do that weirdly. Um, but at the same time, if it's an audience that I know and it's an audience that I understand, uh, you can put in those little like things cause you know, they're going to get it. So I run a, a queer ensemble specifically like of queer musicians and our audience is obviously entirely queer. Uh, and so you can put in those little jabs and jokes and things and you can like put on that piece because you know they're going to get it. You know they're going to understand why it's there, um, even if it's uh, an odd choice. But uh, I don't know, evolving evolving relationship with audience. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like you, you, you just trust them, <laughs> you know? You just yeah. trust that you trust that they'll go with you. They, you trust that they wouldn't have bought a ticket, right? They wouldn't be there yeah. if they didn't want to go with you. No, that's that's probably a good way to put it. Yeah, they they bought a ticket and so they're coming along for the ride whether they, they know it or not. Yep. Yeah. Strap in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Yeah. Mm. How do you feel as an audience member, Sammy? Do you do you want to know what uh is happening? <laughs> do you want an expectation or do you like the I have no idea what's gonna go on, but I trust the person on stage? I think it's very variable as, a, as somebody who does a lot of listening to music. I kind of, sometimes I want something that I guess I can relax to. <laughs> I mean, I just want to go and I know I'm going to hear you know, Mozart, Beethoven, all the usual bunch of people. And, and I know I'm going to like it and I, know I can hum along. And it's not necessarily terribly challenging, but it's kind of a fun thing to go to. And, and, and you know, when I have my radio show, that's kind of for half the show i'll try and play that kind of music for people because that is sort of the music they can connect to but then i also want the stuff that really challenges me that i can either go that's great or that's terrible or what what is going on here um and that can be some you know as, as we've talked about some across a whole spectrum of, of musical genres so, you know, when I listen to it, I like sometimes I just want to be challenged. And then uh, what I try and do on the radio show is to slip in music that challenges people. So they'll hear some Beethoven, some Mozart, and then they'll get some really something modern that, you know, is really discordant and goes all over the place. And and they'll keep listening because they've listened to the rest and they want to hear what's coming. And it introduces them to that kind of music. So I, I kind of, uh, I kind of, as you know, I'll listen to it. You know what I like, Jacob, anyway. I like yeah. I like random, strange noises and sounds that go bump in the dark kind of music. Lovely. Lovely. Like yeah, yeah. You don't find much of that in musicals, annoyingly. <laughs> 
That's times well, maybe you should. Maybe you should. You definitely should. You definitely. Should. I mean, you, I, I definitely think musical theatre could start expanding its vocabulary into that world. Um, especially if there were people out there putting together. You know, we've got musical theatre radio stations and Elaine Page, mm. musical theatre superstar <laughs> in the UK, and possibly further field actually. Yeah, has this two hours on on a Sunday where she does her mm. musicals. I think once or twice I've heard her put in. You know. Uh, uh, something that's a bit dissonant or a bit different but i wish i wish i wish i wish you could take a, a page out of your your book sammy and you know <laughs> every third that. piece was a bit more challenging that would be nicer yeah yeah i mean when you listen and i'm not criticizing any of the radio stations but you know but me neither like disclaimer classic, yeah. Classic, yeah classic fm classic fm or something like that you know you, you get yeah. the top 30 classical tunes that ever existed and you hear them ad nauseum for the next three months with an occasional new piece thrown in by somebody, you know. Yes. And, and it's all really nice, but it doesn't challenge anyone to, to actually feel something different. I mean, I, I think one of the things that we, we've had on here before is that most people who come on here say, I don't care if people don't like it as long as they've got an opinion. Hmm. You know, as long as they go away saying, you know what, I really hated that because of A, B, C, D, but, it, but ooh, you know, ooh, or whatever. And that kind of is it's getting an emotion out of me that's what i want as a member of the audience i might not like it but if you've got me and you've got me angry sad happy whatever it is then we've yeah. connected in something i think that definitely i love that and i really think that depends on audiences being okay not liking something i mm. definitely i definitely wish I wish there was a little bit more comfort sitting with disliking something or not feeling like something speaks to you. Uh, I feel like when we sit in the audience for something, we want to feel connected to those around us, right? We want to be in that audience. We want to kind of be one. We, you know, we go to the audience, uh, we go to be in the audience for a show or a concert because it's kind of, it's our church, right? It's our synagogue. It's our place to go and be with people like us who are responding to something together. And I feel like when you're, when you feel like that odd one out or you feel like, oh, everyone around me really likes this, but I'm so bored right now, you know, or I'm, I, I'm not digging this, then that can feel really alienating. Whereas I really, I don't know, I think classical music does this better than theatre does actually, where, yeah, if you aren't feeling like you like something, you're allowed that opinion, you're allowed that feeling. And that's a great thing to have. You know, uh, it's funny you say that. We the, the last musical I went to in London is a very famous musical that's run for years and is very, very popular. Standing ovations and all this sort of. So we went to see it. I'm not going to mention its name, but it's got French title. But anyway, we went and saw this. We went and saw this film. Well, this uh, this musical. Yes. And I was bored to tears with it. Uh, uh, my my wife was bored to tears with it. At the end, everyone stood up and ah oh, like this, and we're like yes, yeah okay what did we miss because yeah, yeah for us it was three hours of sheer boredom or two and a half hours of sheer boredom but that's okay and i think that's the thing you've got to realize i mean that's from my perspective it was okay to be bored if you know what i mean Definitely. okay to be and, and that, that just depends you know again that's that's uh, you guys clearly owned that and were like grateful to have had the experience regardless and again it's about everyone also being cool with that you know if you're one of those audience members that loves that french musical and loves all three hours of it and you've seen it a hundred times you know you've also got to be okay with people not liking it and it not being their mm. thing 
I don't think there's anything invalid about it. And I, I, I yeah, I, I get sad when people try and invalidate each other's feelings about art, especially music and theater and stuff like it. It's like, there's so much of it out there that suits so many different tastes and different needs. Um, I wish it was less, less of a popularity contest sometimes with things, certainly with these big commercial musicals, it can be. Um, but again, I think that's partly because you go to these things to feel like you're part of a bigger picture. You know, I think mm. at least. Mm. Yeah. I think we need to listen to a better, another piece of music. And, and I really think we need to listen to a piece about salmon next. <laughs> sure. Because I think that fits in nicely. What do you think, Jacob? I think it's perfect. Perfect. A perfect <laughs> pit here. So, go on. Any day now, all about salmon. You have to explain. I'm sorry. Sure, sure, happily, happily. Um, yeah, so this is from a musical that I've recently written um, called Angry Salmon. I wrote it with Ali James, who's an amazing director, writer, and friend of mine. And the show follows a salmon farm that escape. They break out of their farm, and eventually they bring down the corporate fishing industry. They fight them and claim back the seas for themselves. It's a little bit chicken run and a little bit moana and it's a lot silly it's very silly it, it was a, a show that really was trying to say something quite important to me which is just about I, i'm not like a, i'm not a vegan or a, a, a huge eco warrior but i certainly believe that there has to be a, a limit to how much we expect our planet to do for us before we give back to it and that's what's really at the heart of the show but on top of that you know important message is like <laughs> disenfranchised seals and the clamdrews sisters a group of doo-wop clams and uh a lot of uh there's some very silly scottish swordfish who can't stop fighting each other um and th there's this group of salmon that explore the oceans and learn about themselves and learn about their place in the world um and this song any day now is sung by leo dicaprio who is the mayor of <laughs> Mm -hmm. wink wink the mayor of the the daughter of the mayor of the salmon farm and she has these feelings you know that they're in this farm and in this farm you are supposed to spend every day every hour every day working your fins to the bone that's their culture you work really hard because every day utopia enterprises the world's largest fishing corporation will select the strongest fittest salmon to go to utopia they'll be taken to freedom. Obviously, what the salmon do not know is that freedom is actually death. Dun, dun, dun. And uh, that's what is revealed to them one day, that actually it's not the life they thought it was going to be, that actually they're all in big trouble. Anyway, Leo sort of senses this and just has this feeling that something's not right about their way of life, that maybe they shouldn't be working so hard and maybe there's something bigger for them out there beyond the walls of the farm they live in. And this is the song she sings. It's... Uh, really dreamy this is me living my biggest inner disney kid life <laughs> let, let, let's take a listen we dash around and never stop always going and going but that isn't me we hustle forward ignoring the way the water's flowing and that isn't me
Now, I, I, I have to say that this reminded me of like taking a a science fiction dystopian novel of, you know, people being carted off and killed combined with uh, a modern version of Monty Python. I mean, it kind of it kind of had that feel to it, didn't it? The, the sort of this, you know, as you say, and also along with some uh, Ardman anim animation things about Shaun the Sheep and all that kind of thing as well. I mean, it was kind of like a this hodgepodge of very... I have to say, very British humour into it, but which oh, yeah. was there. So, yeah, I mean, it was like, and, and I can, I can expect there are going to be people who are going to go straight over their head and not, not oh, get sure. This. 
<laughs> it was it was absolutely fantastic. I absolutely loved it. It was just great, and, and I couldn't stop laughing. Quite frankly, at the, oh bless me, you know, I'm so thrilled. That, that's the. But then I'm written, we better ask the Canadian what he thought. Oh, I'm not the right Canadian to ask. I'm too much of an anglophile. <laughs> I get it, um, but but it was. I mean, it's it always it it tickles me when people allow themselves to write funny. It tickles me uh, when people allow themselves to write uh, like you're in your Disney kid. Like that's so nice to be able to uh, feel unrestrained and just write something that's like fun and funny and goofy and um, yeah. Such yeah. a great show. It's important. Oh, thank you. Ah, oh, thank you both. That's really kind of you. Um, the thing that was super important to us with this show, for me and Ali, we're both very, very silly people when we want to be. And I feel like we both felt like audiences really need that at the minute. I had just finished writing uh, a bunch of musicals that were super serious, you know, uh, certainly dealt with things with humor, but were very, very, uh, uh, just quite uh, deep and painful to write so it was like okay right let's write about fish and let's make it fun and let's have a fun time doing it and let's let the cast have a fun time doing it and let's make sure the audience have a great time um because sometimes that's the best way to talk about things isn't it the best way to talk about something that's important or to sort of impart a message or share something emotional is is to do it packaged with a lot of fun and something that lets people let their hair down. The show is made so that kids enjoy it as much as adults, mm. you know. It's uh, hopefully it lives up to that sort of Pixar thing of like there's lots of silliness in it for the tiny kids, but there's also a ton of stuff that goes over their heads that the parents really enjoy. Um on top of, you know, these big tunes, the rest of the score is really again all very heartfelt and very silly. Um there's this massive kind of um Nicki Minaj-esque number that the supervillain CEO of the company has. Uh, and there's a big um, uh, Scottish dance as well. Uh, that the, the Swordfish lead and there's a big um, uh, kind of Christina Aguilera meets that the Andrew <laughs> Sisters number for the clams. This is lots of fun to be had. It's full of fun was the goal, you know. And I love composing in that world. I love composing in the world of fun because it just means you're calling on pastiche and you're calling on references and at the same time you get to impart your own voice into it you know it, it's not like a total pastiche show or anything like that um but it, it nods to all of these things that i have fun with and that hopefully the listener has fun with um yeah I'm seeing for the stage show all these people in salmon costumes and swordfish things and all of this going on and you know I can sort of like you know sort of I can it could be it would be absolutely brilliant I must admit I oh yes thank you yeah it's it's certainly we did manage to stage it recently with a big youth group in the UK called British Youth Music Theatre and we did it with oh. 33 young performers in the cast so it was like huge uh, I got to have an orchestra of eight and the cast of 33 so it was like big forces to work with yeah it was mad um but it was amazing and everyone yeah we had these clams that people they wore as like headdresses and um yeah big scottish sashes and swords all sorts of stuff that made it come to life it was really joyful to do um and the audience had a great time so that was really fun brilliant fantastic <laughs> what's I the uh what is your favorite part of this process because I, I have a suspicion of what it might be, but like, is is the creation part? Is it the rehearsal part? Is it the performing part? 
Wow. Oh my goodness. Um, for me, I, I love people so much like, oh my Lord, put me in a room with people to work on something and I'm happy for me. It's all about the collaboration. And that's what I love so much about music in theater. You know, you're never alone, really. You're always bouncing off of a lighting designer as much as you're bouncing off of a choreographer, as much as you're bouncing off of an actor quite immediately. You know, you can often all be in the same room making something together. I love that. Uh, so I don't know how much that's specifically a part of the process, but for me, any bit of the process that allows me to collaborate, you know, I love writing with people. Uh, it's funny. I, I often joke, I could never actually be a composer in the conventional sense. I've recently started doing a bit of film work and screen stuff, mm -hmm. um, which has been really exciting. And it's, it's been lovely to have some projects get picked up and to do a bit of that. But I have discovered I should never be left to my own <laughs> devices and expected to just produce music ever you know being on my own and writing music is not where i'm happiest at all i i love being in the room with someone being inspired by them and you know throwing ideas out i'm i'm not very precious i i, I do everything with a lot of love and with my heart on my sleeve but i've very i've definitely learned that you can't fall in love with your ideas too quickly especially when you're collaborating because mm. you've you've you're always working with someone to create a bigger picture you know to to create something bigger than you so i love that i love those moments in the room where you'll just throw ideas at each other and what sticks sticks what doesn't doesn't and you build something whether that's with one person or with like eight people or whatever i'm part of an improvised musical in the uk um called showstop with improvised musical and oh. it's an amazing company to be part of i feel very lucky to work with them and one of their musical directors and we do two shows on the West End every month and we tour the country. And the reason I bring them up is because they're like the pinnacle of of that. They're the pinnacle of collaboration. You know, everything is genuinely improvised. Everything they do on stage, everything we do in the band is genuinely improvised. And we create a full two-act musical based on suggestions as, from the audience. As, as improvised. I just wanted to check we understand what you, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I find that incredible to know how you would even dream of doing that. It's it's a crazy process, but it's, you know, it's crazy because it sounds crazy. Actually, what we're doing is we're really just all, all trusting each other and getting on stage with the knowledge that we will create a musical together. So we know what that's going to feel like. We know what that might, we know how that might shape itself. And then we just discover it as a team. So it might be a cast of six and a band of three. So it'll be me on the piano, a drummer, and then a, someone will be in like a reed chair with a few different reed instruments and uh, together between the piano and the cast, we'll just create songs and we'll, we'll, they'll, they'll create melodies. We'll bounce off of each other. We all know how songs are shaped or we'll make offers for endings or bridges or choruses or anything. And, and we'll create a musical together. Um, and that's like, I just love that as one of the things that is at the core of my life. Cause a it's living in the vocabulary of musical theater, this very earnest, emotional storytelling form. And it's like pure trust, pure teamwork, pure collaboration. Um, so that alongside writing with collaborators, you know, I'm a happy person if that's my average week. Um, I, I mean, what, what you've just said to somebody who is relatively non-musical. Sure. 
It sounds always sounds incredible. I mean, you know, it's this kind of, oh, you know, we sit down a few things, we play a few things and music comes out and we create a music and off we go on, you know, and, and, and you look at me and you go, no, no, hold on. <laughs> you know, this, this, this can't be all that there is to it. I will also say as the, as a uh, daily practicing professional musician, yeah. even to me, that is a, a wild set of circumstances. And I think that's probably true of most musicians that uh, that is a particularly nuanced and skilled uh, set yeah. to be living in that to be creating at that level. I mean, I, I would consider myself an improviser in many, many ways, but not at that fluency. And so that is even particularly yeah. to musicians, even a very <laughs> sure. Yeah. I think we're all very aware. It's very niche and very, it's very particular. Um, but I think the thing that connects us all is just like this extreme love for it and definitely this extreme respect for musicals and the music of musicals and the the sort of the ways that they function, you know, why musicals work the way they do, why they're so special. And we all spend our time working on on that and sharing an agreement of what that is. Uh, along with knowing the repertoire. One of our biggest jobs is like knowing musicals back to front, you know? So mm -hmm. for me, I spend a lot of my time playing, playing, playing musicals. Um, and that all just influences that what we do. Sound bad. Oh, it's, I'm very <laughs> happy. But okay, but let's say you're going to do one of these shows because hmm. I'm really curious about this. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, so you can't all just turn up in a in the room, three people sit down and say, you go, go and off you go. So, so I mean, you know, I mean, what, what is it you start with what do you decide on before do you decide it's a great a question theme or yeah. a methodology so, I mean, so what, the what audience give us the audience give us a location so the audience throw several ideas out uh you know they'll say in a fishbowl someone will say at the top of the eiffel tower someone else will say in a greg's in manchester and someone else will say in a boarding school in the 1600s and then the audience will vote where they feel like they'd most like to see a musical set and then we'll get a title for this musical, which would usually be something really punny and really silly, and it'll help set up the tone of the show. And then we start, we go for it. We create an opening number for this musical. We start with a musical theater landscape where the actors will come out and the band will start and we just build the picture of this musical theater world and we'll meet characters in it and their relationships will become clear. And we go from there. Um, so the improv does start pretty early on. Um, it, it's worth it's talking about how we... It still sounds incredible to me that that actually anything could come out of it. I mean, I'm not an Definitely. I can't advise anything, but it but it kind of it's so fascinating. I mean, it's the sort of thing I, I'd love to see actually happen in real time. Oh, because it's, well, yeah, I hope you get to at some point. It, it's a really yeah. you know I watched it. The show's been going for 15 years. I joined six years ago, and I started out as a fan of it. And I remember watching my first one and weeping through the whole thing because I was so amazed that it was possible that all these people were so humble and were so focused together that their artistry could combine and they could just improvise this thing. And at the same time, I was like, oh my gosh, I found my tribe. I found this company of people that love musicals as much as I do and in such a way that they can do this together with confidence and assuredness it also like it's so worth talking about this it, because it's improvised and musicals on the whole take anything from like five years to 10 years to 15 years to develop from the first seed of an idea to like big production they can be huge production journeys whereas showstopper and other improvised musicals that I'm involved in we can we can talk about things that are relevant in our lives now 
on stage mm. tonight. You know, I've been mm. involved in musicals with Showstopper that are more important to me uh, in their themes, you know, certainly in terms of their queer themes than any written musical I've ever seen because it's improvised. So we can actually discuss things that are important to queer people now rather than what was important to us 10 years ago, you know. And I love that so much. And this musical that I saw, the very first showstopper where I cried my eyes out, it was set on Noah's Ark and it was called When the Ship Hits the Fam. And it was all about the fact that these these heteronormative couples of animals were heteronormative. So it was like, well, what do we do about the gay animals? Like that was what the musical was about. And I just, I just remember being like, how have I just watched the queerest musical I've ever seen? And they improvised it. Like, how has this happened? And I just, I was just so moved. It's a high bar to start with, to be honest. Yeah. It truly was. It truly was. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I, I just, yeah, I'm. I, I'm actually amazed that anybody can do this. So I'm. Mean, I'm just going to be thinking about this oh, all night. Nice you. Like how this works. <laughs> well, come thing. come watch it if you get the chance to. I feel very yeah. lucky to be doing it myself, and it's worth saying it really does come from just the trust as a team. And when we rehearse, mm -hmm. we don't sort of plan things, but we do it. We play it like a sports game. You know, we're a football team, and we practice the game. And mm -hmm. when we get on the pitch, we've got no idea what's going to happen, but we know we've mm -hmm. got each other's backs. Fantastic, fantastic. I guess we ought to listen to one more piece. Um, you should. Which I, I personally, I don't know if I'm going to drive some of these, is, is the, with the residents of a retirement home. Being near retirement myself, I want <laughs> to know what's going on in the damn retirement home. So this is called Lovely Boat. Is that okay? This is also from public domain. So would you like to say something about that? Please? Happily, yeah. So, oh, Lovely Boat is is like yeah not to sound biased but it's like my favorite thing in that show um in public domain it again the show public domain does follow mark zuckerberg and his wife and these two young influencers but we also meet loads of other characters ironically today we've listened to two songs that are about completely different people the facebook content monitors and now these gorgeous residents of the uh the retirement home but really that's because the show zooms out and looks at the impact of technology on our lives and uh lovely boat comes near the end of the show once we've been through an awful lot of quite traumatic things where these young influencers have been completely rinsed of their self-confidence because of social media and their relationship to it and they've been completely run to the ground because of the energy it takes from them and the commitment that that social media requires you know we all have a touch of that in us don't we because we all we know what it's like to have to use social media we can't pretend it doesn't exist and these uh characters have really had their lives turned upside down by by it and mark zuckerberg at the same time has had his, his life turned upside down because I, i'm not necessarily going to sort of stand up for him here as a human being but he is a human being who's capable of being hurt and at this point in the show we're watching him really suffer and really have to try and figure out whether he's done more damage than good to the world you know uh anyway all that happens and so the show goes okay audience we need to breathe here for a second let's just look at what happens in a place where technology is quite new and can mean something quite hopeful and certainly means something very different to what it means to a 13-year-old who spends hours a day on TikTok. And then we go into Lovely Boat, which, yeah, we'll take a listen to now. I got to sit down with a few residents of a retirement community 
to learn more about their way of life in this modern digital world. I'm Hetty and I'm 93. I'm George, I'm 93, yes, I was born in 1924. Do you have a mobile phone yourself? I do, I can't do without it. I'm getting into new technology bit by bit. Bit by bit. Last year I had to go into hospital in August and I didn't get back home until December and that phone kept me in touch with Everybody. I enjoy being on the iPad more than the phone because I can express myself better. If my daughter was going on a holiday to Brittany, where we go, and I said, sort of, have a good journey, I can go on to something called a GIF and I can send a picture. I can go on to something called Say no I years old and I don't feel a day over 80. <laughs> I always play on Nintendo. I have a break, a cup of tea and I'll start on my Nintendo again. And I thought I'll have a change. I'll see how my brain is. So I'll try the one for my brain. I much prefer to be using my brain. I find I am very forgetful. I can't remember things the next day. So I try to do these, and it really is helping. And I would suggest that if children had this at school and sort of playing games to do the maths and the spelling, it would be wonderful. Really marvellous. Have you ever taken a selfie? No. Do you know what it is? Yes, hold it in front and take a picture. It'll take a picture of you by itself. Oh, my God. God. Do you want to take your first ever selfie? Oh, I'm not photogenic at all. Oh! You didn't smile in it. I know! Can I try another one? No. If someone's thought about something, I can send a scary picture. Some sort of like that. I can go on to something called a gym. And I can send... Previously, I had a brother who died and left me just a little bit of money. And I thought, how can I, what could I buy to remember him? And that 
months when I bought my first computer. And I named it Albert. I've got photographs of everybody. Photographs of the wife. I speak to her every day. Say goodnight to her every day. I can send a picture. I can send. So we have uh, listened to your newest. We've listened to Public Domain, which is uh, at least a couple years old now. Um, the inevitable question, what things are you working on now? What's the next uh, kind of thing that we should expect to hear from you? Among the millions of things you're doing, obviously, but what mm -hmm. are the things you're, you're really excited about? Wow. Um... There's quite a lot stirring. There's a lot of things that I'm excited to share with people and some stuff that I really, really want to just get a move on with as well. Um, there's one show, which is uh, something I wrote with Francesca, who did Public Domain with me, uh, which w is called P.S. I'm a Terrible Person. And that's about this teenage girl who uh, is diagnosed with anorexia. And she's an absolute wizard kid. She is intelligent she's coming to age she's coming of age not just as a an absolute brainiac but also as a young queer person and she's also dealing with this mental health disorder on top of that and the show just follows her experiences with that as a young british teenager coming to terms with that managing that and trying to find herself in a place where she can really feel like there's balance in her life that's what that show is and that's currently in development for tv I can't say any more than that at this stage, but that was a stage musical is now in development for TV, which is really exciting. So that at some point, keep your eyes out for that. Um, uh, and then on top of that, I, I've been developing Angry Salmon further. I've been developing a show called Friday Night Sinner, which is a comedy musical about a sexually oppressed Jewish housewife and her closeted husband and her dreams of um, stardom, effectively. She's uh, spent her life uh, in a very grey, dull town in the north of London called Boreham Woods, and she's desperate to get out of there. And we've just done a run in London at the Soho Theatre, um, which was really well received. So that's also uh, hopefully uh, growing a little bit more. Um, I'm just about to start writing uh, a show, I, I, which I can't stop thinking about at the minute, which... It's currently titled Parents of a Queer. And it's a musical that I want to write, whether it's got two people in it, four people in it, or six people in it, I'm not sure, but it's going to be a small scale musical. And I really want to write something from the perspective of parents raising queer people. I really want to write something for their voice, something that 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 shares with us 
you know, what it's like to be in that position. I think it's part of the queer narrative, the queer story that we don't look at often and can often be quite a, a negative thing in media and in stories. You know, it can be quite uh, sort of, you know, I, they're either villains who, who, who are homophobic villains or they're really lovely people that don't care. You know, there's no in-between. And I just think that's crazy un, and unnuanced. I think actually I'd love to sit in the theatre for an hour and just hear some parents who have raised uh, raised gay kids, raised trans, trans kids, who, who have been around queerness in a way that, you know, that has affected them in some way and has impacted their lives. This is really inspired by my my mum and dad. Um, I sat with my mum in Edinburgh this summer when I was up there for the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And she's awesome. My mum went from, I had to come out to her three times. You know, there was a time when I definitely heard it's a phase from her all the way through to now when she, you know, she has a great relationship with me and my gayness and my boyfriend and and my life and she's very happy to have conversations now that she wasn't happy to have 10 years ago and yeah she just sat down we were having a cup of tea and she really quite randomly came out with something like gosh wouldn't the world be so lovely if we were just all a little bit more compassionate and tolerant of each other and i like you know single tear it was like yes mum <laughs> yes you're right um and then she started to talk to me about the fact that um one of my very old friends from primary school so when I was like five or six years old who was my first girlfriend me and her were girlfriend and boyfriend at six years old and I think I bought her like all the pinkest things I could which I actually wanted for myself and we lasted six days we lasted wow, six days, good those days. <laughs> yeah. i thought it was quite impressive yeah i thought it was impressive. quite impressive um yeah. and sh she is like 27 28 now like i am and she's just come out as gay and you know that's that's certainly a lot later in her life than when i came out in my hometown down in weymouth in dorset and my mum just asked me what I thought about that and what she could do to help because this friend of mine who's just come out, her parents aren't dealing with it very well. And I just had a moment where I was like, this is too special a perspective to not hear in some kind of story somewhere because I just, I've had enough of these villainous homophobic parents and these saintly, saintly ally parents. There's just not, it's so black and white. I just don't believe it works like that. I don't believe parents are always like that. There are certainly those extremes out there, but there's so much in the middle where parents have their own journey to go on, which I think that I think that journey is something that certainly as a queer individual, I want to hear. I was also surrounded by a lot of queer theatre at the Fringe Festival, which was just quite extremist and certainly a bit unsympathetic to an older generation where... I totally get where that's coming from and, and these arguments and conversations are vital, but I just wanted to hear some nuance to it. And I wanted to hear some older perspectives, um, especially for those older people who have changed. I, I can't get over how moved I've been in my life when I've seen someone who's much older than myself. For example, my dad, who's now 75, just to watch him go from someone who is happy to, you know, have very uh 
uh confrontational experiences with me you know to 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 you know at one point in time he would have absolutely yelled the house down to me about queerness and would not have accepted it to five years later happily sending me a text to ask how my boyfriend's doing you know like that that uh someone in their 70s i don't know if there's anything more inspiring you know um, yeah I think it's a bit of an issue here that I think is is missold because I am from the older generation. I mean, I'm in my sixties. Mm. Uh, I, I tried to come out many times through the through when not back in the 1970s and when it was hell and all kinds of things. Um, and and it isn't. And and I talk today with a lot of parents of of especially trans kids, and and it it isn't age. I think that's the problem. <laughs> I yeah. really don't think yeah. it's age. We're focusing on the right thing. There are a lot of older people who are, are very supportive of, of queer people. Um, I mean, you know, we often get um, kids who, who first trans kids who can't come out to their parents yet come out to their grandparents. And, mm -hmm. and so it, it's, I don't think it's age that there's, there's other things in the psyche which cause people, but, but I think it's kind of an interesting time to talk about this because, um, you know, if I look in the in the trans community, which I'm closely connected with, it is a real issue at the moment. You know, uh, I, I mean, uh, to not take the tone down a bit here, but, you know, trans kids are, uh, are killing themselves because of the lack of parental support. You know, we had one recently in Sweden who actually had supportive parents, but the rest of the people weren't and they hung themselves. And this is kind of a theme we're seeing is, you know, is is the sort of a, a new sense of hopelessness, I think, in a lot of queer kids because of society and because of the misinformation going out to parents. I mean, when, when I when I was younger, parents had no clue what I mean, everyone thought I was gay. So that's, you know, because that's the only word they knew. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody who isn't this is gay. You know, you're gay, you're gay, this kind of thing, which was fine. No problem with that. But it, it was kind of, it, it was people didn't know. Now they know, they think they know, and they don't, and they don't understand the situation. I'm not sure making something very clear here, but it's, it's, it's kind of a, a different world where people have so many opinions they're fed so much in social media and so many things that their opinions are not their opinions by listening to their children their opinions which have been given them to by other people who have an ulterior motive i think and and, and so i i kind of think that parents are going along with whatever they're told by social media or the television station or gb news or whoever else they're listening to yeah this, I mean, that's amazing to hear. Um, and I'm, thanks for sharing that because that's, I think that's why I feel compelled to, to do something that, that has just all the voices in it. Not necessarily like, you know, like you say, it isn't about age, but there, there, there's definitely something about, uh, other generations, all different generations speaking about this that I think is really important mm -hmm. and something that for me at the minute just feels lacking in theater. Well, certainly in musical theater, um, there's, 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 you know, there's never enough queer musical theater ever, but if there is out there, it's often very young yeah. queer musical theater. Like, throw, a trans, throw a trans person in because we never see one of those anywhere in any sort sure, of music. Sure, sure. Sorry. <laughs> you know. Well, that, I guess that's what I mean is I feel like a musical must have space for, you know, 
uh, an older trans character and their perspective and their story or, or, or parents who are in their 30s and they don't know where their opinions have come from, whether their opinions okay. have come from their peers or how they truly feel or the information they've been fed from places that they may or may not need to trust. You know, it, it's so nuanced. And I feel like that's why, yeah, that's why that yeah. just needs, it needs exploring. I mean, I mean, I've met parents on one hand who are like, I have my fantastic child. They're coming out. I need help. What do I need to know? What do I need to know? How do I deal with this? Because I don't know. I'm not that way. So what can I, and that's great. They'll ask questions and do this. On the other hand, you've got the lots of coming out. That'll be the last thing they do. I'll beat the shit out of them before they come out. You know, this kind of thing. And, and as you say, those are the two it seems we see. But there is a great variety within it. You know, the two extremes sell newspapers. The ones in the middle don't sell anything. And, exactly. And, uh, and i would i would say there's there's that space in the middle that gray area between the two is what makes this this whole conversation a bit more human and a little bit more you know hopefully if we see the stories that are in the middle there's just gonna i would love it to be an invitation for a bit more empathy around the whole conversation you know that i think will just hopefully help everyone see each other for the human beings that they are that's my hope i i mean i think then then you can write the musical to talk about i'm going to get on my high horse here about the immigrants and everybody else who's in the same position because at the moment we see all this kind of thing these aren't completely unnuanced you know yes it's, yes it's, yeah. it's it's black and white everything is black and white every single item is and there's nothing there's no in between there's no compromise there's no humanity has been taken out of it so yeah please write lots of musicals <laughs> <laughs> oh you don't have to ask me twice to do that <laughs> that's, that's all i want to do well yeah. the very full circle uh sentiment there then that, that, that musicals present us this way of uh talking in immediacy and talking people and seeing people in a much more uh immediate way and having a conversation and having a conversation with people on stage and artists and audience and uh this is the this is the venue where we can maybe do that. It's through music theater. Yeah, yeah. Musicals do have a way of reaching a huge variety of people, people mm -hmm. from all sorts of places, backgrounds, lived experiences, all places, all over the world. You know, musicals can reach that that level of audience. So I guess that's why I would love to take these stories and put them into musicals. You know, fantastic. Great place to finish, I think. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Oh, I could Thank talk you to you so both all the day. I really could. It's it's been fantastic. Well, when your TV program comes out, when you have your <laughs> TV, then, we'll then then we'll do it again. And and uh, you know, you're always welcome. It's been fantastic talking to you. Thanks. So that's all for this episode. You've been listening to the Classical Queer Podcast and Jake and I look forward to being with you next month. The incidental music is courtesy of Jared Miller and the show was produced by Samantha Jane. <laughs>